This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera that speaks, theater that sings, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host and resident talking head, Timothy Nelson, artistic director of in-series. Today is October 8th, 2019. It finally feels like fall, uh, and you might hear some construction outside of uh, the Source Theater where we're in residence. Um, I, I apologize for that. We've recently closed the first show of our 2019-2020 Lean In season. Butterfly, which played for an unbelievably 16 times in Washington, D.C., and two additional performances in Baltimore for a total of 18 uh, performances, I think the most we've ever done of a single show. We're exceptionally proud of this production uh, that had two casts performing in two languages, Italian and English, and which was widely acclaimed by critics and audiences. It was a big step for us as a company artistically, in terms of capacity, production, on, on all levels. Uh, and it was a it was a big success, and and we're terribly proud of it. But there's no rest for the weary. We've already started, and are actually now in the middle of rehearsals for our next show, uh, which is a stormy weather. Stormy weather is a new version of the Tempest uh, that we commissioned from Sybil Williams. Sybil Williams is a playwright and the chair of African-American and African diasporic studies at American University and an artist with whom we have a long relationship and who wrote last year's sellout show uh, from U Street to the Cotton Club. We're partnering with uh, Sybil to write a version of The Tempest, which is told from the perspective of Sycorax, which in the original play is an unvoiced African female character uh, who has no agency and we never hear from, we only hear about her. Well, this piece seeks to tell the story from her perspective as well as the perspective of the other two enslaved African characters in the original Shakespeare play, her son Caliban, as well as the spirit Ariel. Uh, it uses the music of Billie Holiday, it uses spoken word, poetry, uh, African drumming, beatboxing. Uh, it's an amazing uh, piece. I'm, I'm really proud as a company that we're producing such a thing. During Butterfly, uh, we realized that this season is very much about what it means uh, to perform a canon of works. Opera's unique in the uh, the way it performs almost exclusively from a canon. All performing arts perform from a canon to a greater or lesser degree. In film, uh, there's a very small canon. Some pieces like uh, A Star is Born get made over and over again, maybe three or four times. Uh, but most film narratives are told once. They're recorded in stone. They're etched into to a single version of that story. And then artists move on to, to tell their next story. This, of course, is less so in dance, even less so in theater, where, where works of Shakespeare, Beckett, Ionesco, Ibsen, um, on and on and on, do form a canon of works, but largely theater and more and more in contemporary theater, and particularly in Washington, D.C.'s thriving theater scene, uh, theater companies produce a lot of new work. Well, opera is on the other end of the equation. In opera, even though a lot of new opera is getting made and having great success with audiences, we still perform largely from a canon of work, and uh, relatively speaking, a small canon of works. This season at In Series, we're producing uh, Butterfly, 
uh, Carmen in, in January, and we've just announced the winner of our our vote. Subscribers this season got to vote on our final show between Hendel's Oratoria Susanna or between Verdi's Rigoletto. I'm very proud of how close the vote was, but indeed in the end the, the vote fell in favor of Verdi's Rigoletto, another deeply canonical work. Uh, our second show of the season is Stormy Weather, which is from Shakespeare. You can't get more canonical than the works of William Shakespeare. Uh, then we prefer, perform L'Enfance de Christ, which is in the oratorio world, quite canonical. But this piece also looks at what it means to perform a canon, how we perform a canon. It will be performed in a way an oratorio has never been performed before, and I'll, I'll speak a little more about that later. And then finally, of course, we have our Women Composers Festival, which uh, questions how works become canonical, who gets to write canonical works. The whole season is really about the nature of the canon. And when we were producing Butterfly, uh, which is a much beloved and essential part of, of a canon, a, a rich canon, uh, but a canon that's also plagued with problems of race, uh, gender inequity, uh, misogyny, one could say, cultural appropriation. We wanted to create a space to have conversations about that, so we hosted two panels, uh, our director's salons. One was on the topic of gender and opera, and we were very proud to have the Washington Post and Majette, along with a panel of fascinating women who are involved in the creation of opera on all different levels as singers, as, uh, mu as, as music directors, as programmers, and Majette, of course, is a critic for the Washington Post and a brilliant writer on, mu on music theory and music criticism, and uh, Corinne Hayes, who came from the Washington National Opera and is a uh, brilliant young director and thinker about opera. We also hosted a panel on race and opera that was in coalition with the Washington National Opera and the Coalition for African Americans in the Performing Arts. And we had a, a long and emotional and riveting discussion about uh, how race plays into the way we cast operas, the way we as an industry produce operas, and really both these conversations we're looking at what it means as an industry that we uh, repeat over and over as if in ritual very problematic pieces, particularly in terms of the ways they look at race and gender. In those uh, conversations, of course, the question came up, why do we even perform from a canon? Wouldn't it be better just to throw the canon out and start again? Uh, and I have to continually defend a position to other people and to myself about being canonical as essential to opera. Uh, it's wonderful that we do new works. It's wonderful new works come into the repertoire, but something essential about the way opera works is that it works over a very long period of time. Works are folded into the canon only slowly, uh, and works stay in the canon for, for many, many, many generations, if not centuries. Uh, and as a director of opera, but also for performers of opera, one of the beautiful things is that I will return to Figaro um, over the course of a lifetime, many times, and it will be different every time I come. And same for a singer who might sing in a production of Figaro, uh, Figaro many times, but also might sing Figaro, Count, Bartolo throughout the, their, the entirety of their life. Um, what's necessary then is that canonical works have enough 
genius worked into them, brilliance worked into them, uh, that they can sustain that. And that's why we perform canonical works, and canonical works do, don't um, grow on trees. They, they're hard won, but they're also problematic. Uh, in thinking about our next piece in the season, Stormy Weather, and how we would want to shape the director's salon for that, uh, I, I wish I could say that this was intentional, but I accidentally became aware, of course, that our, our neighboring company, Synetic Theater, which has their uh, beautiful theater in Arlington, Virginia, and does movement-based theater uh, and a lot of Shakespeare, is at the same time that we're producing Stormy Weather based on Shakespeare's Tempest, producing their own version of Tempest. Uh, not only does that make it unique enough, but we're both presenting works of about the Tempest, neither of which has a single word of William Shakespeare in it. So we approached them about the idea of collaborating on a director's salon, having a conversation about uh, how it is that one single work can yield grossly and vastly different interpretations, and they were wonderfully game for this. So last night, uh, we had our director salon hosted by Synetic Theater in the lobby of their theater in Crystal City. Uh, we were very uh, happy to be their guests, very lucky to, to have their artistic director, Pata Tsikoshvili, and our own Sybil Williams in conversation. Now, usually for director salons, we have a lot of uh, different scholars and thinkers from divergent and diverse fields talking looking for interconnectedness in the themes of a single production, but this time I wanted to have an intimate conversation with the creative forces be behind two very powerful but different ways of reading a single great canonical work. The Tempest is Shakespeare's um, last full play. It was a long time believed that it was his final play, it is not, and that it was his farewell to the stage, which it is not, uh, but it is his last great play. He calls it a romance. It's also a revenge tragedy that in the final moments uh, provides uh, a scene of redemption and a picture of what grace can look like. And it's a piece that's been read in multiple ways, either as a parable of the everyman, as the uh, enlightened humanitarian look, uh, humanist look at the piece, or it's also been read as a uh, depiction of colonization in which Shakespeare falls to one degree or another uh, in, in, in looking at the beginnings of slavery and colonization that were, were starting in the early 17th century when he when he wrote the piece. So in this podcast of In Tune, we're going to uh, re-air the audio from last night's uh, Director Salam. It's, it's about an hour long, and again, it's myself moderating with guests Pata Tsikushvili and Sybil Williams in conversation. Uh, before I do that, though, I want to, to first talk just a little bit about what's coming up third in our season. We're doing Berlioz's great oratorio, L'Enfance de Christ. L'Enfance de Christ is, of course, a French title. We'll be performing it in English, and the translation is The Childhood of Christ, and it tells the story of the Massacre of the Innocents, which is when King Harold, in searching for, uh, searching for the Christ child, was, uh, had a vision that he should kill all of the young, ch young male children uh, and uh, took them from, from their parents and slaughtered them. Uh, the Holy Family was warned of this and fled into Egypt where they were welcome and lived until their uh, return into the Holy Lands. Um, what this piece is really about, however, is about 
families fleeing violence, persecution in their homeland, immigrating through a long journey to a foreign, strange land, and finally finding in that place radical hospitality. It is a refrain which should be familiar to us today. I have to admit, I originally wanted to do the piece more than a decade ago, I guess 15 years ago, uh, when the Darfur crisis uh, was very much in the public awareness and in the media cycle. And this piece to me spoke to that issue in a very contemporary, relevant way. I never thought at that time that, that these same issues would come home to be at our doorstep. And in planning this season, it seemed like a perfect opportunity to, to address them in the arts. And the art, arts, of course, uh, can speak to these issues in a way no other art form can. We wanted to find a partner for this, uh, for this sacred piece, and we reached out to Foundry United Methodist Church. Foundry is, of course, one of the leading uh, sacred spaces working in the area of social justice. And we wanted a place where we could invite a larger community to be part of making an opera uh, that was themed around justice and which could also be an exploration of faith, art, and justice. And look at how those three things uh, necessarily are in conversation with, with each other constantly. In particular, I wanted the experience of making art to be seen as a spiritual practice and to be something the community could be involved in. And this is, this is where I'm driving to, my friends. Art Enfance de Crise offers the opportunity for you to be part of the magic, for you to participate. And there are a number of ways you can do that. Uh, you can participate as singers in the chorus. We open uh, the choral opportunity to everyone. It'll be conducted by maestro Stanley Thurston, who's done a lot of projects with us. Uh, and the, the core choir will be a group from Foundry United Methodist Church, but this opportunity is open to anyone. Uh, this is an unstaged choir. It doesn't require a lot of time. Uh, it requires passion and uh, caring deeply about, about this music. Uh, also, uh, and may, most uniquely perhaps, the audience will not only have the opportunity to sit and take in this performance, uh, but members of the audience can also choose to move with the performance, to be moved throughout the sanctuary, and to take on the various roles with other actors of uh, the characters in the story, the soothsayers, the parents uh, who are having their children taken from, taken from them, the families that are in the caravan traveling uh, to a strange land, and those who welcome them radically when they arrive in, in this new place. Uh, to achieve this, we have what we're calling guides who will lead the audience through this uh, performance. This is an opportunity for you to be on stage in the production in a non-singing way and to lead the experience for, for the rest of the community that participate as audience members. Uh, this is a slightly larger commitment. It involves some staging rehearsals on Saturdays and Sundays throughout the month of November. Uh, but it's, it's perhaps the deepest way to lean in, to use a phrase we like to use a lot here, uh, into this uh, production and this very unique experience. Finally, um, we'll be creating for this piece an, an art installation. We'll be turning Foundry's sacred space into a sacred uh, work of art. 
Uh, and what that work of art will be is going to be determined not only by the, the two uh, wonderfully talented local artists we've engaged to create the piece of art, but also by you in conversation and in the making. So we invite people who want to be involved in making the visual component of this production to be in touch and to share their talents, their interests, and we will design the experience around them. These are three ways you can be involved as singers, as guides, and as makers. You can find more information on our website, which is www.inseries.org. And when you go on there, just find the link to L'Enfance de Christ, the third show of this season. And then there's another link that will take you to a description of how to participate and uh, how you can contact us and, and, and learn more information. I'll also say that we're going to be doing a four-week uh, series of lean-in sessions. Those are drop-in sessions, so if you miss one, you don't have to uh, worry about coming to the next one. You can come to any of them you like. I'll be doing the first one, which is October 27th. That'll be a, a presentation of L'Enfance de Christ. I'll talk about why the piece is so important, why it means something deeply uh, contemporary, uh, why we're doing it now, and how it's designed as a sort of musical triptych, as a meditation that's not meant to be read from left to right or to be seen as terribly linear, but how it's more a, uh, a meditation in the style of a Renaissance triptych painting. Uh, we'll talk about that piece. The next week, which I believe is November the 10th. We'll have a, a special guest guide us through a conversation about faith and justice. We'll look at how faith demands justice, in what way. We'll also look at how art has been a part of creating justice through faith. Uh, the final, uh, the week after that, which is November 17th, we'll have a similar conversation with, with a, a local uh, seminary student who spent a lot of times working working at the crossroads of art and faith. And we'll talk about that, how making art is a spiritual practice, how art can clarify and open up a liminal space where we can approach the sacred, whatever the sacred is for us in a new way. And finally, on uh, November 24th, we'll have an immersive arts experience. We're gonna invite uh, Bedia, who is a Sufi whirler, who, uh, for those of you that might have seen our uh, Tale of Zerse last year, uh, she had taught the cast uh, the whirling dervish, what it means, how to practice it, and then staged it into our opera. She'll be leading a class on uh, the whirling dervish, again, teaching what it means and then teaching us how to do it. She'll be working in collaboration with a Baltimore-based uh, beatboxer and breath artist who will create a soundscape. Uh, it's a thoroughly immersive arts experience to, to be the culmination of this four-part uh, series on art, faith, and justice. I, I encourage you to check those out. Those will be at 12.30 on Sundays. Uh, they're completely free at Foundry United Methodist Church, um, open to everyone, all faith backgrounds, all experience levels. Uh, you can find more information online at www.inseries.org, or you can email directly Kara Gonzalez, who's our wonderful marketing and outreach coordinator, and her email address is Kara, C-A-R-A, at inseries.org. Now, without any more ado, I'm now going to play the audio from last evening's Director's Salon with our partners at Synetic Theater, uh, Pata Tsikushvili and Sybil Williams in conversation about our stormy weather and the tempest. Um, hi everybody, my name is Jason Najum. I am the managing director here at Synetic Theater and uh, we are so honored to be hosting this series and participating uh, tonight. Um, many thanks to uh, Timothy who 
happened to put two and two together that both companies were adapting the same original text in almost the opposite way. Um, and, uh, you know, we're Very closing. careful planning. For right. And we're, and we're closing the day after you guys open. It's just, it's, you know, the epitome of, uh, of uh, fortuitousness. So, um, so glad to be hosting it here. Um, and so I'd like to introduce our panelists. Uh, moderator, uh, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of the Oven Series. Um, Sybil Williams, the uh, adapter of um, Stormy Weather, and uh, the creator and director of Our Tempest, um, Pasta Sikorishvili. Um, let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, good friends. Do we need more light? As Jason said, uh, my name is Timothy Nelson. I'm Artistic Director of In Series. Uh, and um, I want to extend a, it's not. You, wanna, you just have to flip the switch. Oh, I see. The on switch is not. I was going to say just talk. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Well, I've been catcalled at previous director's slots for being too soft. So, uh, My name is Timothy Nelson. I'm artistic director of In Series. And uh, I'm so pleased to be able to welcome you to this uh, collaborative director's salon and to extend a, a thank you to Jason and Pata for having us here. It's, it's really wonderful to to have a community in DC's theater scene where we can do things like this, even if they, they are accidental coincidences. Um, as many of you know, we at the In-Series have been doing director's salons for, for many years, and last year we changed the format to be uh, a place for uh, diverse voices from different backgrounds to come together and to discuss the themes of a given production, and to, through that process, find the interconnectedness of what we do. This year we've loosened that a bit and are sort of shaping each director's salon to be specific to uh, what, what issues the, the production we're working on raises. In our last uh, uh, production, Butterfly, we did two director's salon, one on race and opera and one on gender and opera. And part of that was talking about what it means that in opera we work from a canon of problematic pieces. And I have to admit, at the end, uh, I left, as I, as I imagine some of the audience did, saying, why don't we just throw out the canon and start all over? Why do we perform from a canon? And about the same time, I uh, discovered that uh, Synetic was doing Tempest. And I thought, well, here's a perfect opportunity to get together with another company. There's nothing more canonical than Shakespeare. And to say, we're both doing the Tempest. We're both doing the Tempest without a word of Shakespeare in it. What does that mean? Uh, and uh, we're taking radically different uh, interpretive directions with it. And this is a chance to have a conversation about how canonical works we perform just because they can yield all these different interpretations. I, I want to briefly read the, the bios of, of our two panelists. I should also say, usually we have a much bigger group of panelists. And I thought for this, it'd be really nice just to have the two creative brains behind a given production in conversation with each other and to do something slightly more intimate. Um, to my left is Pata Tsikorshvili. I practiced. Jason, um, Jason helped me, I have to admit. Amazing. <laughs> uh, who is an innovative, award-winning international artistic director, director, and educator with more than 30 years of experience fusing classical elements of drama, movement, dance, pantomime, and music. Since Synetic Theater's founding in 2001, he has received an impressive 25 Helen Hayes Award nominations and has won the award nine times. Together with his wife and co-founder, Irina, he has, was named Washingtonian of the Year in 2013. He's directed and performed in Hamlet, The Rest is Silence, The Master and Margarita, The Crackpots, Dracula, Host and Guest, Frankenstein, and The Island of Dr. Moreau. And he's directed over 60 productions, all for Synetic. 
Yeah, 90%. <laughs> oh, wow, that's amazing. Um, uh, Synetic's inaugural production, Hamlet, the rest, is, the rest is Silence, received three Helen Hayes Awards for Outstanding Director, Outstanding Resident Play, and Outstanding Choreographer. As an educator, he has trained hundreds of actors in movement technique through Synetic Theater and has taught at leading universities such as American University, Catholic University of America, and Georgetown University. Before moving to the USA, he founded Mime Drama. Mimo Drama uh, Theater in Germany and has toured worldwide. Pat holds an MFA in film directing from Tbilisi to, to State University and a BFA in acting from the State University of Theater and Film in Georgia. And to my right, Sybil Williams is a playwright and dramaturg who currently teaches in both the theater, musical theater program and the critical race and gender studies collaborative where she served as program director for the African American and African diaspora studies. Her latest play, I'm not, this is almost not correct. Um, her, latest, <laughs> her latest play, I Am a Drum, was presented as part of Fresh Theater's inaugural season in March 2016. Gloria and Rwanda, uh, Gloria and Rwanda will be performed by Fresh Theater in 2019, was performed in July 2019. As a dramaturg, her latest projects include a new musical titled U-G-L-Y, -G ugly, mm -hmm. at Sigwork's Summer Musical Theater Development Series and a new hip-hop musical at New York City's Flea Theater titled Cinching Inc., which premiered at Houston, Houston's Alley Theater in January 2017. She most recently worked as signature theater, at Signature Theater as dramaturg on the Scottsboro Boys in June 2018. Would you join me in please welcoming our guests? Uh, I always begin these these panels the same way. Usually it yields a very different questions. So I ask my panelists, why X? So why physics? Why poetry? Why brain science? Why opera? Uh, since we have two theater makers, it's the same question, which I think is fascinating. And I wonder if you guys could share us just a little bit about your background and why why theater? Okay, you okay. can get it on. So why, why theater? Uh, I mean, I don't think I had much choice. Uh, because I was nine when I started. Yeah. My parents put me up in, a, uh, in Tbilisi, uh, capital of Georgia. There was a children's uh, theater that uh, I was basically stunned when I saw the production first time. It was professional, it was enchanting, and I wanted to just sign up for the classes. And since then, I've never stopped. Simple as that. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> Similarly, um, I actually remember my first performance. I was a teddy bear in our second grade um, <laughs> school play. <laughs> so I remember that very distinctly and similarly never stopped. The other thing that I, I love about theater and why I keep going, it's a dual reason now because as I study more and more African-American studies, Africana studies, cultural studies, I realize that theater is a way of having an intimate conversation with a group of people. And there are a lot of ways to talk about race and culture that you can invite people in with theater that you can't really do with other forms. So it, be, it becomes really important to me as a person interested in African-American, Africana culture to say here we are in a way that's most inviting and to allow people to engage us in a space that says you're welcome. Uh, I thought to I thought to put us, I'm going to try this without. I thought to put us all on the same page. I'm going to very tr quickly tr give, a, give a history of The Tempest uh, so that we can talk about the play in a way that everyone understands. Uh, the Tempest uh, is written in 1611 
It is not Shakespeare's last play, and it's not his Farewell to Theater, but it is a very late play, and it's the last complete play that he wrote. Uh, it opens with a storm, hence the name The Tempest, uh, in which we learn that a ship has been destroyed and everyone on it has been killed. And after that scene, we realize that is not true at all. We meet Prospero, who tells us the storm was just a, a, a fantasy, a, a conjuring of his. He's on an island with his daughter, and through a conversation with his daughter, we learn that uh, 12 years ago, he was Duke of Milan, he escaped um, being usurped, or he was usurped and escaped death with his daughter. Uh, there was a storm, he landed on this island. He met its native people, including uh, a figure named Caliban, who was at first a friend of his, and then later um, he tells us everything we learned through Prospero. So we don't know what's true or not, but Prospero tells us that Caliban made an attempt on the, uh, the chastity of Miranda, and he was then enslaved. We also know that Prospero has another servant or slave named Ariel, who 12 years before had been a tree and had been imprisoned as a tree for another 12 years by Sycorax, who is the mother of Caliban and was the previous uh, ruler of this, this island. Prospero tells us that she's from Algeria. Prospero tells us that she uh, is a blue-eyed hag. And Prospero tells us that she is dead. Uh, that is, is the bulk of, of the pre-story. Um, and then the play itself uh, has a, the shipwreck had the king of Naples and the brother who usurped uh, Prospero on it. And it is a classic revenge, it starts as a classic revenge tragedy, which was very common in uh, early modern theater, uh, except at the end, all is forgiven, which is what makes it unique and what makes it a romance instead of, of a tragedy. Um, that being said, I wonder, and I've been, I've been wanting to ask you this since I saw the production, because you do so much Shakespeare. Um, yeah. <laughs> with, your, with your particular um, approach, movement-based approach to it, where do, you, where do you dramaturgically start with a play, particularly Tempest, but with Shakespeare in general? Uh, in general it's interesting that you, where you just described a story, and a pre-story, and then honestly, in the early version, uh, I, we did stage those stories, including Sycorax uh, putting Ariel in a tree, mm -hmm. and the whole relationship, but we had to narrow down because then it became lengthy, and then <laughs> it's a timing. So uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, the thing is, like Shakespeare has been translated in any languages. So it's I read it in Georgian, and it feels very much Georgian because of the themes. And I believe it feels same way everywhere because it's such a human nature-based stories. Not to mention historic plays and so on. Uh, and and I think it's like. It inspires, it inspires uh, artistic mind differently. Like you paint picture with your words, and then the words are also sparking same uh, story in different media. So it's movement or visual, doesn't really matter. It's like what really inspires you? What's the subtext? Is any, any little uh, images that like, can spark and tell the story with the one image basically elaborate like thousand words together? I mean, it's all imagery. It's all about what words are doing to you, if it makes sense. So when you read something, and then something is going on with us either emotionally, or we have mind's eye working differently. Perhaps because my, you know, I've I've studied film directing, and my thinking is more like visuals, fragmented. So envisioning everything. So Shakespeare is very helpful there. Describes things really well. Relationship is strong. 
uh, the characters and then story storyline is already there. So, so it it allows us artists like us, I would say, that telling the story without words to just go beyond words or beneath the words and try to find to get the same message out, perhaps differently, but the same 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 story, same feeling, and maybe same emotions that you are experiencing while you're reading. So it's kind of hard to describe how to paint the paint the picture. I don't know. But you th you think about making the story into an image? Absolutely. Well, yeah. The symbol is. Let's put it this way. There's so much symbolism in Shakespeare. So we, I don't want to describe it. We all know that. Uh, and the symbolism also is part of our lives nowadays. It's without without symbols, our communication probably will be nowhere. <laughs> Very simple example. Big yellow M. <coughs> you see her reaction, what that means. So it sparks something in your head. You know it's McDonald's, and the whole menu runs in your head. So the one, one image gives you thousands of information, lots of information, and everybody's also getting differently. Even taste runs in your mouth. I mean, that's how powerful is the symbols. And the same thing is in the Shakespeare. You know, when we talk about the poetry, like, you know, uh, what that means visually. So how we create visual poetry, and that's, that's the process to find out how we do it. So it's, it's interesting that you, I want to pivot to the same question for Sybil, but it's interesting you mentioned symbols, because for, well, until the 20th century, the symbols in the Tempest were read as um, Prospero as a sort of everyman or as a stand-in for Shakespeare, and Caliban as his earthly side, and Ariel as the ethereal side, or on a macro level that Caliban is earth and um, water and Ariel's fire and air and it's about man controlling. It's this very late Renaissance human. And then in the 20th century, all of a sudden people said, well, what if the only character isn't Prospero? What if Prospero's only one side of the equation? And then we got this reading of it being about colonialism and slavery. Um, so the same question for you, Sybil, how, what is it to, where do you start dramatically, um, re, dramaturgically re, reinterpreting uh, a, a piece of, any piece of Shakespeare, but particularly? I love what Patan said about symbols and language, because that's exactly where I go. There, even the image of Prospero with this cloak and this stick that he summons all of the sort of forces of nature around him is for me, for some people, it's this wonderful symbol of magic, right? He's this powerful magic person. For me, it's a conqueror. And so what does that mean? Power. So, yeah, exactly. Power. So for me, it starts with how language has been used against certain people and how to marginalize certain people. So you say M, big golden M, to somebody that's hungry, and not only conjures McDonald's, it conjures all the things they can't have, right? So I start to think about that. Like, when we start to think about how blue-eyed hag, so much comes to mind with that. Is this a woman who's just got horrific blue eyes and doesn't is completely unattractive? Or do we take the Renaissance meaning that she's somebody who escaped hanging because she was pregnant? Was she Algerian pregnant and escaped hanging? What does all of this mean? What does it mean? So I want to look behind the language and find out who's been marginalized, who's been left out by this language, who's been let in by this language, because that always is important when we start talking about 
people who've been colonized or marginalized? Like, what does how does language play a part in that? For African people, the first step towards slavery was to strip them of language, and that's what Caliban is railing against. He is coming to Prospero saying, you have something that belongs to me, but I don't even have the language to explain to you what you've taken. And so it's, it's, this, it's this conversation that, how do I get prayers, which is what Sycorax says, how do I get the prayers back into my mouth? How do I take back language? But more than anything, how do I make you understand what it means to be me? How do I get you to that point? So there's that. And the other part of it is in the African tradition, all magic is word magic, right? So you hear even people like from the Caribbean, like Bob Marley, say life and death are born on the tongue. What a man say, make him live. What a man say, make him die. Hmm. So the way in which language is used decides who lives and how they live and who doesn't. And so how do we begin to negotiate the power of language when we know it has that much power? Can we, can we go further and talk a bit about Prospero? Because in our original version, there wasn't going to be a Prospero. Right. We now do have a Prospero. <laughs> but originally it was about giving linguistic agency to Sycorax, finally, right. who in, in Shakespeare's play, Sycorax doesn't appear or have any text. Uh, and last season, we opened with a King Lear, uh, sort of King Lear, uh, <laughs> a one-person King Lear that was a woman. And you also cast Prospero as a, as a woman. Uh, and for me, uh, that was about, in the words of Lady Macbeth, unsexing. Um, Lear and making Lear into an every person. Uh, so I wonder if maybe we can talk about the different approaches you both took to Prospero and how choosing a woman informed mm -hmm. the character and how we came to the decision to have to have a Prospero. <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, right on the f during the first rehearsal for the Tempest, uh, Phil Fletcher, who used to be original Prospero in a previous production, he, he had a knee problem, he needed to go and do surgery, he needed to take her. So and then uh, it was, for me, that was moment that like, first of course, like, <gasps> what do we do? Uh, and, 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 and then, uh, as always, uh, we took it as an opportunity, and then instead of uh, fixing it, we changed it. Uh, and uh, I think putting, casting Irina in it, it brought a lot of uh, new dimension to it. So number one, it's a different psychological flow because uh, female psychology is completely different. Different uh, Emotional depth is completely different. Uh, moral, it's completely different. Uh, pain, stronger than male. Uh, forgiveness, stronger than male. I mean, that's how it worked out and laid out perfectly. Uh, and simply mother, depending on kid. Mm. I don't think father can come close to it when, when, it, when it gets really that far. So, and you know, that even like the instinct base or just intellectual base in every aspect, every angle really kind of landing in a spot itself. Because it's also accident, uh, it's like co coincident that like last version uh, Antonio, uh, we casted female and we had Antonia, sister. And now both sisters really? is wow. became matriarch rivalry, kind of two sisters against each other. So totally different dimension. 
So, and then uh, I, the other day I mentioned to, 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 to our team that like uh, uh, end of the, uh, the uh, after opening, I was moved to tears uh, exactly when the forgiveness moment happened. It's a very simple, I don't know why, and then when I became so sensitive, I don't know, but like I was, <laughs> I was moved because that uh, very authentic emotional flow of the mother. So we, I think, uh, us, we know best what mother means. I mean, we as in males know best what mother really means. So it, that moved me. Right. So forgiveness and motherly approach, and it's all kind of stuff. And Arena is astounding. Oh, no, I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, there is a reason why I married her. <laughs> 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 yeah, she's always been my muse, and she's still my muse, and... Uh, that's what it is. Amazing. She always excites me. Nice. <laughs> and how did we end up with a Prospero? Because the actor demanded it. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's well, I hear you. I, yes, I know how that works. Actually, what we found in trying to have a Sycorax as the protagonist to attempt to explain what this usurpation has meant to her, what it meant to come back to this kingdom and try and reclaim everything that had been hers seemed almost pointless if the person who usurped it wasn't there. Yeah. So it really was like, okay, I have to confront the person who actually is responsible for what this is. The other part of it is that if we're actually having a conversation about colonialism and the possibility of redemption and understanding, you have to address the person who is the, the, the symbol of a colonizer, and that was Prospero. And to really have the conversation about why you need to understand who I am and why I have to have the things that you took returned to me, and why you, I can't just take them back, you have to be willing to give them to me. Why it's important for you to return what you took freely. We needed somebody in that space who could actually hold that moment and have that conversation. So that's why we ended up with a Prospero. I, I always write more questions than we ever get to, and one of my last questions has to do with redemption. And I was gonna save it, um, but since you both brought it up, I'm gonna skip there and hopefully get back. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Father, in, in your version, so in, in Shakespeare, redemption comes because Ariel convinces Prospero mm -hmm. to offer redemption. Um, do I remember right then? Your version, it comes solely from Prospero. Yeah. Uh, Prospera. It, Prospera, yes. Uh, <laughs> when, uh, when, when Prospero really hits the emotional peak, so to speak, to destroy her sister, and this is the moment when she sees Miranda uh, in love, embraced with Fer Ferdinand, <laughs> and that stops her. And then as a mother, she becomes more tender and then goes towards the forgiveness. So I think again, this is the, this is the moment for some reason, I do believe that like, perhaps we as a male, we cannot snap out from the critical moment. Mm -hmm. I see, so because it was a woman, because yes, yes. I mean, that was the, that was the way it shaped up and I did not change it because those small details and moments for visual storytelling, you don't really have to stick uh, with the original. Mm -hmm. It's still adaptation, there is no text in it. 
but there's some tweaks. It, it's like we allow ourselves to tweak it around, so mm -hmm. to speak, because it was very truthful moment itself. Uh, and the, from dramaturgical point of view also, then I had to invent few more scenes uh, to make Ariel inter you know, stop in her and then why she stopped. And it kind of chain reaction, you need a lot of 10, 15 minutes to add. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of all together. So the, my instincts was telling me that is simple. Simpler is best. Simply she just stops. And then slowly you see how she transforms from monster feelings, like ready to crush, and then how slowly she melts into forgiveness and redemption and she becomes sweet and even more powerful after that. Yeah. Forgiving it. And that's what in the end uh, King Alonza when she goes like, you know, lift, brings, lifts him up and then she shows their kids. So that kind of brings it together to me. That's right. It's interesting that you say she becomes softer and, and it's motherhood that allows the softening, that allows. The same thing happens in our stormy weather. Um, it is <laughs> it is Sycorax who has all the power to undo all of this, but chooses not to because of Caliban. Yeah. Caliban is the child that belongs to her, and she says, I won't destroy what is his. And so it's Caliban who teaches her how to come back to a place of acceptance and love, and, and she teaches him things as well. So it's still that motherhood principle of, at the end of the day, Prospero isn't really the concern here, it's mother and son, and what that's going to mean, and why they need to reconcile together to solve this problem. And Ariel um, has also been given charge of, of, our Ariel has been given charge of our little Caliban, from childhood because our Sycorax wasn't totally interested in being a mother. Caliban's needs had to teach her to be a mother. So Ariel was given charge of, of Caliban and in our stormy weather, Ariel can't be bothered with children. So <laughs> Ariel, is, Ariel is like a good time person. Like, oh no, 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 I got my bar, I got my drinks, you go do that somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But ultimately um, it is Sycorax who sort of brings them all together as her own. And that's where the redemption comes. Like this mother reclaims everything that's her own. So what can I ask? It's interesting. In early, sorry, in early stages before we launched the rehearsals back in 2012. So uh, I was really attracted into Caliban and Sikarek's relationship mm -hmm. in the character, and I almost wanted to do just like his point of view. And then you can tell influence here. I toned down, but still, you can. You, you see that influence that it's almost like became. Caliban's kind of storytelling in general, because he's the one who stays alone right. on the island in my version with that magic book. Yeah. So. I wonder if we, we can transition talking about Caliban through this. I, so this idea of forgiveness and redemption has been a lot on my head and a lot of people's heads up this week with, mm -hmm. um, with uh, Botham John's mm -hmm. brother's mm -hmm. forgiveness. Um, and I feel like the redemptive moment in Stormy Weather is a little more obscure, mm -hmm. and I, I just wonder if part of that thinking or what, when we're talking about forgiveness for epigenerational crimes like enslavement and colonization, how does 
redemption fall in there? What sort of redemption is possible? Then? I think redemption comes in acknowledging your role in any kind of oppression. And that's not, that's not gendered, that's not raced, that's not in any way ethnicized, for lack of a better word. That's in the everyday choices that we make as human beings who live in particular systems to acknowledge, I am a part of the system. And what does that mean? What does it mean that I engage the privileges of the system? What does it mean that, that those privileges sometimes, mar sometimes marginalize other people? What kind of steps can I take to make sure that I am making the best choices I can make every day? And sometimes that's the only place, that's all redemption can look like. It can't look like forgiveness, one, because you can't forgive people for epigenerational crimes. You, you, you just can't do that. But you can agree to make a better society. You can do that. So it's, it's how do we begin to face what we are and to face history. I think one of the amazing things about our, our, our stormy weather, our tempest, is it's about facing history. And this country has an incredibly difficult time doing that, facing history. And everybody says it, from W.B. Du Bois to James Baldwin. I mean, they all say, if we don't face history, we can't move forward. And now we're even in a time where we don't know what history is. Oh, that's not history, that's, that's fake news, or that's post-truth, or those aren't <laughs> facts. These are the real facts. I'm gonna rewrite history so they suit this set of political facts because you know, all history is politics. No, it actually isn't. I mean, the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, I may see it a particular way, but it happened. It's a fact. What I choose to do in terms of how I look at ethnicity different peoples and concentration camps is one thing, but I can't change the fact that the incident happened. And so we've got to begin to think about what are the facts here? How do we, how do we approach these facts in a way that transforms all of us for the better? Is there a way possible to do that? And that's what redemption is, I think. So moving to Caliban and Sycorax, actually, who's our main character, um, you early on decided that um, not only that Sycorax was the mother of Caliban, but Prospero was the father of Caliban. Uh, and so I wonder if on one end we can talk about our Caliban and um, even the performer, our performer doing Caliban and why we made that choice and how Caliban figures into the story. And on the other end, um, you include Sycorax as well, uh, which I was overjoyed to see. So if we can maybe talk about Sycorax as a character and Caliban as a character and and what their relation to the larger narrative is. Mm -hmm. And ours, Caliban is the son of Prospero and the daughter of Sycorax. So he is the son of a woman who has traveled through time under different guises, always as a African woman, moving through time, always in the same sort of position as African woman, very powerful African woman. And Prospero, a white male actually from a continental white male. Caliban is their child. And Caliban's primary problem is where do I belong? I've got my mother's history and gifts, but I've got my father's need for organizational control. What do I do with these things? How do I negotiate being a child of both of these, if you will, cultural, social, political approaches to things? How do I do? And, and he wants his father's love and his mother's understanding. Like, 
he wants, well, reverse it. He wants his mother's love and his father's understanding. And his father wants no part of him because he doesn't need him. He doesn't need Caliban. And his mother is like, I don't know what to do with you because you remind me of a history that I don't want to be reminded of. So what does this child of both worlds, if you will, do? And it's almost a metaphor for the diaspora. Like, what is, what do we do with Africa? What do we do with continental Europe when we belong to both and neither? Mm-hmm. How do we negotiate this? So that's what our Caliban's role is. And our Sycorax is trying to help him negotiate that almost unwittingly. And for me, actually, this the idea for this production started with in the in the Lear we did, we inc- I included the line, "This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine," um, which is a, in the in the context of the play doesn't mean as much as it can mean now yeah. in the context of the play, but it's a huge line, yeah. um, and and uh, maybe the most powerful line in the piece. This mm-hmm. idea that we're owning it not only as a person, but uh, as a stain upon yeah. our humanity. Yeah. Um, and what what about Sycorax in your terms? I mean, uh, and and that Prospero is not the, the mother of Sigrid. <laughs> no. Uh, but, in, but in a way, is the adopted it's, mother. It becomes like a stepmother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in our version, I mean, again, I had to uh, already cut down the staged sequences of Caliban and Sycorax uh, because then was the path that I had to maintain throughout. So then I had to, I had to shorten it and then go with a more metaphorical storytelling, and then we have Sycorax only two times. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, you see how viciously she's depending on a child. Uh, it's also kind of metaphorical that Prospero is by accidentally killing her mm-hmm. because of she's de- she was depending on kid. And same times, Prospero also had own kid there. So mm-hmm. that was kind of moment that like sometimes nature puts you in a position that like you don't have time to think about, but to react first. So that was kind of moment, and then in the in the middle of uh, production, somewhere we have uh, when uh, Caliban tastes that alcohol, gets a little drunk, and he tells the story mm-hmm. about mother, and then we have flashback, mm-hmm. and then we see that like, like you know how mother was um, teaching the first steps, how to just survive, how to be, how to hunt, how to this, how to it's like a basic motherly motherhood. So. And then you see that he was missing that so much. And then yet, uh, even though he was with uh, Prospera, somewhere deep in the heart, he doesn't trust mm-hmm. him. It sort of re-triggers his yes. rage. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. For me, the most moving part of the show was actually in the beginning when, when Prospero kisses, yeah. uh, kisses Caliban's head from behind. And I thought that was... <laughs> That's so touching. Thank you. And would only have worked with a woman. Yeah. And then she, the, her perspective also was when she realized what happened, that what she's done it, whatever for whatever reason, then she started suffering herself. She, yeah. she, she got hurt. She knew that was not her intention. So that's the human kind of, mm-hmm. uh, again, motherhood elements, uh, met- metaphorically, was really strong. Yeah. Right. I wonder if we can talk now about Ariel. <laughs> ah. Ariel. Because I think there's also a beautiful, accidental, but not accidental as these things are, synergy between our two productions. The, these two pianos, of course, are just a prelude 
to the piano on the stage <laughs> that spurts water that's amazing. Um, the piece is very musical, it's very lyrical in that way. And in our version, uh, though, though uh, the actor playing Ariel will speak a bit, he, uh, he largely communicates as, uh, through the songs of Billie Holiday. Um, it's a musical language, and this of course comes from Shakespeare because all the songs in The Tempest are Ariel songs, uh, Full Fathom Five and, <laughs> and so on, so there's already a lyricism about the character. But um, in a way they're, they're common in, this, in, in, in that, in the other way they couldn't be more different. You have a, uh, a, 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 a man who's very um, charismatic and, and big, larger than life personality. Yes. Ours is also a man, but a man dressed as Billie Holiday. Mm -hmm. So because there's always been this gender fluidity in the character of Ariel, we chose to have a uh, female impersonator playing Billie Holiday. I wonder if you could both just talk about the role of Ariel in your, in your, uh, your two perspectives on the piece. Yeah, of course, you know, it's, Ariel is another supernatural character mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, each time there is the opportunity to really work around with the supernatural, it works for us because of our, because of our vocabulary to let, tell the story, and especially Alex Mills, guy who has no bones, basically, <laughs> he moves around, and then he has this kind of uh, transcended quality, so to speak, and he transforms in front of you, and he moves you. So the, the metaphor for, for, for us became more like, it's to me, especially the latest production, the way it's shaped up, it's almost like a, a prosperous internal uh, sound, internal feeling, internal world. When there's example, when uh, uh, Ariel emerges from the water, the old version with the projection, we used to have the projection in the old version, we had that surreal tree kind of shape that he was in, in it. But for this production, there is no projection. We just went through basic, you know, simple artwork, uh, artwork, and then he emerges from the water. So he became water for us. Mm -hmm. Same time, because, I mean, it's, of course, it's water everywhere. In, uh, so it makes sense. Uh, uh, and then the, when he emerges from the water, if you remember, first time Ariel sees piano, he goes very lyrical, very poetic feeling, and goes like, sorry to Prospera, and goes like, my God, I missed you so much, mm -hmm. long time. And then he activates. And then the whole fountain comes out of it, you remember that. And mm -hmm. then he starts playing the music with his water streams. And that's when we have Prospero gets deep in, sinks in her thinking, just a flashback, and then it becomes her personal feeling and emotion. So metaphorically, that's to me, it's a prosperous internal world. So she needed internally also to be able to tell her own self, so this is time to forgive, or this is good, or this is bad. And in the, in the end, uh, if you noticed that like, she releases him, and then he vanishes underneath the piano, yeah. and the piano goes shut down again. He's gone, mm -hmm. and the Prospero is also leaving. So it's a metaphorical, it's a surreal, I call that, I, I use often that word, but that's what it is. It's a surreal storytelling, gives you room for different interpretation, and it depends you as an individual, how you meet this moment right now, that's how you're taking it. So it's like very different perspective for everybody. So it's not like that's like what it is, but it gives you the room to imagine by your own 
So where that goes? I don't know. It's I love a surreal approach. I, it has some uh, power in it. It uh, creates for audience uh, such a moment that like it evolves you without you knowing it, sucks you into production, and makes you part of it. Because you're instinctively thinking to articulate those visual imagery and emotional flow same times and process it throughout ba your brain so you're becoming part of it instinctively. Right. It transforms you, right? I mean, it has this kind of magic, I don't know. So I don't know how to explain, but I'm trying to give it well, some hint. I think in the same way uh, pure music does. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned the music, I'll say that the music for, for nonverbal productions, that's our script. Because everything is synced up with the music. And I always say that when we all together will become a music itself, then we are all set. So that's the goal towards uh, polishing the production that like every single moment is with music. The music is what creates that atmosphere and emotional flow in general. Opera without any singing. Opera. Right. It's a, hey, I've, I've read it, somebody quoted it as visual opera. Yeah. So like, I'll take it. It makes sense. <laughs> it, makes, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, Sybil, I came to you. <laughs> you're, you're so brave. <laughs> I came to you and said, uh, Tempest, Sycorax, Billy Holiday, played by a man. Go. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, but I, I, I wonder if you could talk about Ariel, sure. also about Billy, yeah. and, and, and Sycorax. And also referencing back to the actor playing Caliban, did, yeah. I don't know if you remember, Quincy Jones did a Messiah album mm -hmm. that at once was Messiah and at the same time was chronicling the history of black music. Right. So it started with drumming and, and ended with, with uh, Messiah. Uh, ended with rap by the well, end, I think it was yeah. the 19, yeah. late 1980s. In, a, in the same way, I mean, we have a hip hop artist doing African drumming and we have jazz in the middle with Billie Holiday. It's also a sort of exploration of black music. Not that we intended it that way in the no. beginning, but I wonder if you could just talk to that. Um, our play, Ariel, is a, a ancestral spirit enchanted by Sycorax to only sing Billie Holiday songs. And there's hmm. a reason for that. Two of them, actually. What this, our play takes place over a very long period of time. So it starts in 1858. Actually, it starts in 1610. Then goes to 1858. Then goes to 1925. Then goes to 1930. And then 1959 is where we land. And 1959 is, we're talking about all the coming changes in America, but in actual fact where this, where this action is located is Sea Islands, Georgia. So they're on this small, uninhabited island on the sea, in the Sea Islands, barrier islands of Georgia, moving, and Sycorax is moving through time. And some of these lifetimes are so hard for her that she can't hold the memories. So what she does is place them inside Billie Holiday songs and the songs are spells, and they work in two ways. They work in that Prospero's waterfront bar and grill, which is the grill he's usurped from Sycorax, keeps customers and are well-maintained by Ariel singing Billie Holiday. So when customers come, there's this enchantress, Ariel, singing these wonderful songs, but what she's actually doing is holding Sycorax's memories and enchanting the the patrons of the club with spells that make them stay and drink and have a good time. 
So all of that is happening. But what's most important about the music here is that the music is the memories that Sycorax holds as she's moving through time. So when we hear drumming, she's on a slave ship, and that's what she hears, and that's what she shuts down very quickly. Like, Ariel knows not to do that unless she really wants to have that memory. Like, don't take that out. Then there's certain Billie Holiday songs that she will sing so that Ariel's Zikarak will say, yes, I do want that memory. This is a great song. Let's have that here. Or she'll really sharp give Ariel a sharp look like, don't sing that. Don't do that ever again. And there are times when Caliban is also singing. Caliban does not sing Billie Holiday. Caliban sings African rhythms and speaks to African songs because that's what he knows. And also in our production, we use actual um, hoodoo spells. Sycorax is a hoodoo healer. So Caliban drums and he speaks in the language of spells, like how to make a mojo lucky handbag, how to heal somebody from a broken heart. You take, you know, take a jar of five finger grass, six rose petals, da 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 da. And he's doing this to music, but he doesn't know where he got it. He doesn't know how he understands it until much later in the play. So music is not just is something that fills time. It chronicles Sycorax's memories, and it also serves as spells and potions for the people on stage and in the audience. So it's a lot happening here. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sort of roll my last two questions into one large question and then hopefully open it up to, to our audience for, for questions. Uh, I want to ask about how we, you two end your productions. Um, Sybil, um, it occurred to me today when I, when I was thinking through, through what we could talk about tonight. Uh, Shakespeare wrote, wrote The Tempest in 1611. This year, of course, we celebrate 1619 and the arrival of enslaved peoples in the Americas. Uh, colonization and enslavement wasn't new in 1611, but it was certainly new to the consciousness of the wider public and Shakespeare. So he sort of expresses, I, I think in the text, I sense an anxiety about colonization, uh, but it's, it's iffy how mm -hmm. he feels about it, but he certainly doesn't seem completely comfortable with, with it. Uh, and about slavery. We're now, you're having a conversation with Shakespeare uh, 400 plus years later when we can see the, the costs mm -hmm. of colonization and the costs of human slavery. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about what talking to Shakespeare from, from before the fact and now after the fact is like and how you chose to end the piece. And, and then Pate, um, your ending reminded, it started to remind me of the Mark Lamos famous production ends with uh, Prospero leaving all the tools of colonization and, and leaving to go back to Milan. And uh, Caliban picks them up and puts them on. And we see him become the cruel mm. colonizer. That sort of violence is inherited and taught. And I thought that's where you were going at the end. And then all of a sudden it ends with, uh, with a beautiful picture of hope. So I wonder if both of you could take a turn and talk about why and how you decided to end your pieces in the way you did. Um, I actually end where, in some ways where I began, and what Caliban is speaking is a litany of activities that began in 1959. So in 1959, we get the beginning of civil rights movement. We get Brown versus the Board of Education, Montgomery, Bus Boycott. We get all that stuff. And, and Prospero is like, something's coming. I got to get out of here. Something's changing. I don't, I don't know what this is, and I don't know if I like it. Um, 
and Caliban just kind of keeps speaking it to him. By the time we get to the end, it's hit because Sycorax has returned with all of this stuff from the world and she is demanding a reckoning. Like, this is the world that's coming. 59 is also the year Billie Holiday died. And she was present at Billie Holiday's death. And she saw a woman who even in death was still persecuted. And she's like, I'm going to carry on because this person couldn't. The world that you made is ending and I'm here. And I want an acknowledgement of that. And so that's where, will she get it? is kind of where I like what are you going to do now that she's made this demand and for me it's very much me having a conversation with Shakespeare because as an African descended woman who's been doing these plays for hundreds of years and celebrating 1619 and thinking about all kinds of colonized marginalized people in the world means the advent of this acknowledgement of indigeneity and the danger that our planet is in. Having to say to someone like Shakespeare, we're here. What intrigues me about this play more than anything is that he wrote it because there had been a shipwreck in Bermuda and Bermuda was new and the people there were curiosity. It's like, no, we're not curiosities. We're here. Well, We've one of the great lines is, is um, Miranda saying, oh, brave well, new, new world, world that, that has such people in it. it. And Prospero says, tis new to you. Right, right. <laughs> like, it isn't. But at the same time, it was new to Shakespeare. And it was new to his audiences. And it was a place of sort of, it was like our Star Trek in Star Wars. Like, I don't know what's out there, but I'm going to throw everything at you. And we're saying we were here. and We've been here. We've been here in all kinds of ways, and there's a large conversation we could have about slave trade routes and the involvement of Elizabeth's England and all of that. But for me, it is reckoning with Shakespeare. It's, it's I'm here writing into your text. I'm writing into it, and I'm expanding it. So what do you do with that? Uh, in our version, I think it's more, I kept simple and open-ending. Uh, the hope in it that simply what you see is uh, he is left alone in on this island but there is a book that he picks up so metaphorically there is a knowledge there is an experience that he's taken with but what he's gonna do it's up to you yeah I mean, giving over to it's the yeah it's always he just goes like <laughs> if there's a technical issues he closes the book. <laughs> if, if, if there is no technical issue and the, the book lights up, he just blows up and blows out the light. So it's, it, it, it gives you room to, for the interpretation in general, like is the hope or what he's going to do after that. So it's like somebody I remember uh, commented, uh, we had a Q&A, that like he said, like, it reminded me when the Brits left uh, Hong Kong. Mm. I'm like, huh? So I never thought about it, but I mean, it gives you room that some everybody has own way to interpret it. One is very Shakespearean in the, in the whole "lend me your hands." Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Suddenly communicating with the audience. Yes. Uh, my friends, do you have any questions? Heather, you mentioned the importance of the, of the music. Is the music set at the time you start the first rehearsals? It's uh, <laughs> it's like a chicken and egg question. <laughs> uh, which one is first? Uh, it's it depends. Sometimes we do have some of the music 
for example, the director's cut, that's what uh, Constantine is calling from previous production, and suddenly I like, oh, I like that music to use it down the road there. So we have the music, or uh, before he composes what we need, and let's say Irina is inspired with whatever music uh, is out there right now, and then she starts rehearsing, so she rehearses with uh, placeholder, so to speak, and then Constantine is composing similar world. So it depends. Uh, a lot of work happens during the tech. It's, I call it like post-production kind of work when you really go with the details and tiny things that you don't really even notice or think about it. So that's when it really comes together. Uh, but Thanks, I have the same question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a common question. Everybody's asking yeah. that. It's, it's like, I don't know, chicken and egg. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Silence. Nice. We've been so thorough. We've Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you both. Thank you. Appreciate it. There you have it, friends. I hope that has uh, whetted your curiosity for both stormy weather, which uh, which we're we're about to open next week, and for the Tempest at Synetic Theater. Synetic Theater's Tempest closes, I think, the day that we open, which is October the 19th, or uh, Saturday, uh, and by turn we open October the 19th, the Saturday. It plays October 19th, 20th, and then the following weekend uh, as well at the Atlas Center for the Performing Arts. You can find more information online, www.in series.org or by calling our box office 204-7763. That's 202-204-7763. I've seen this show in rehearsal. I've uh, watched some videos. There'll be some videos coming out soon to promote the piece. I would not miss this. It's something extraordinary and very special. This has been In Series, the In Series podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find out more online, www.inseries.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Instagram. You can also download all our podcasts wherever you listen, iTunes or SoundCloud. Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first work of art. Go out in the world and make your art through civility. Until next time, this is Timothy Nelson.